Welcome to Literary Fiction on NTS. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hi Octavia. Hi Carrie. How are you doing today? I'm very tired. Oh god. But I'm okay. No, I'm just, I'm living with my goddaughter who I adore, but she's nearly two and she woke us all up very early yesterday morning and I still haven't quite recovered and I just want to say parents, I don't know how you do it, you're amazing. That is, um... Cool. <laughs> <laughs> no, sorry, I meant to be more sympathetic. Yeah, I am also feeling a bit tired because I took the train in from Oxford early this morning. Oh, God. Which, yeah. which listeners may be able to tell from the even more gravelly <laughs> tone of my voice. <laughs> anyway, really excited to be here today um, because today we're bringing you a show celebrating poetry. Yeah, one of my favorite things in the world. Yeah, not, I mean, a thing I like, but a thing that I <laughs> <laughs> I think I've really been wanting to do it for a while on the show, haven't we? We've yeah. been talking about it um, yeah. for ages. So, yeah, it's really exciting. It is a pretty huge theme. So it's something we'll hopefully be coming back to over time as we talk to different poets. But let's kick things off with words from the celebrated Canadian poet Anne Carson, who says, if prose is a house, poetry is a man on fire running quite fast through it. I love that. Yeah, me too. So whether you're into Frank O'Hara or Emily Dickinson, Audre Lorde or E.E. E. Cummings, Walt Whitman or Sylvia Plath, we've got something for you. Joining us today is Hannah Sullivan, who has recently published her debut collection of poetry, Three Poems. I guess you don't have to say poetry when it's called Three Poems. Anyway, Octavia, can you tell our listeners a bit more about Hannah? I can indeed. Sorry, you're really making me laugh this morning. Hannah Sullivan is an Associate Professor of English at New College, Oxford. She received her PhD from Harvard in 2008 and taught in California for four years. Her study of modernist writing, The Work of Revision, was published in 2013 and awarded the Rose Mary Crawshay Prize by the British Academy. Her work is interested in literary language and the study of the writing process. Three Poems is her debut collection, published by Faber, and it's out now with a beautiful duck egg blue cover, so keep your eyes out for it. It. Yes, it is a beautiful thing. Yeah, it really is. Inside and out. I'm about to press it into the hands of many friends. Yes. So today we'll talk to Hannah about her collection, about poetry in a more general sense. And finally, as usual, we will give our book recommendations. So come get lyrical with us and we might even drop some rhyming couplets over the next hour on Literary Friction. <laughs> That's so dumb. <laughs> so dumb. I'm sorry. I wrote that bit. I hold my hands up. I wrote that bit. <laughs> Hannah Sullivan, welcome to Literary Friction. Thanks so much for coming on. Uh, we've asked you to start with a reading from three poems, so could you set it up for us, please? Um, sure. I'm going to read from the first poem in, in the book, which is called You Very Young in New York. Um, I'm not going to read the very opening, but I'll read the first section that I, I wrote for the poem um, and, the, and the next one as well. So this is about waking up um, in the morning. All summer the park smelled of cloves and it was dying. Now it is Labour Day and you've been sleeping through a rainstorm, half aware of the sewage and frying peanut oil and the ozone rising in the morning heat and the sound of your roommate hooking the chain, flipping ice cubes into a brandy balloon, pouring juice over them, ruby sanguinello, till they giggle, popping their skins. The freezer throbs. He has been beating a man he met on Craigslist. He has been dreaming. Old New York, a James novel, a Greenwich Village Christmas, a certain kind of frost in the meatpacking district, and the smell of the carcasses dull with the tang of freezing blood beside the skip of the Hudson wind. You have been thinking of the building opposite at night, the lights going off, one by one a diminished Mondrian, one ochre square where a woman undresses for the city, stroking her puffy thighs. You hear him talking on the phone about you, his 
petite innocente. All summer you have been eating peaches from the green market. Overripe in September, they need to rest in the ice box sitting with their bruises. All summer you have been dreaming of fall and its brittle confection of branches. Lying awake in the fat pulse of November rain as the bond market falls and the art market gets nervous, starts to freeze up and hipsters keep on trying to sell Huckleberry Jam from Brooklyn and novelists keep on going to Starbucks to craft their sagas, adjusting their schemas, picking like pigeons at the tail of the morning croissant. As the bartenders figure out the winter cocktail lists, telling each other that chinar, grapefruit bitters and a small batch mezcal will be trending in the new year, even though guests are still going to be wanting Negronis at weddings, gin and tonics on first dates, Manhattans before moving upstairs, away from the camera phones on illicit business. Schramsberg 98 is working well for Caitlin and the Nouveau Bellini. Jed crafts a drink from porter, coffee rum and brachetta d'acqui. It can only be written in Chinese, but is ordered as the vice grip. Its taste is whipped cream and kidneys beer bitter and honeyed. He makes it for the girl in leathers with a face like the Virgin Mary. You are listening to Bowie in bed, thinking about the hollows of his eyes, his lunatic little handjicks, longing for Berlin in the 70s. You are thinking of masturbating, but the vibrator's batteries are low and the plasticine pink stick rotates leisurely in your palm, casting its space-age glow into the winter shadows. Thank you for that reading, which I think gives a lovely sense of that poem and how it marries sort of everyday ideas like Starbucks or a vibrator with larger feelings about what it is to be young and in New York. I'm starting to think a lot of these details are pretty anachronistic now. Actually, but, um, <laughs> no, but that's what I loved. I loved that it was um, um, that it was so set in a particular time yeah. and so recognizably so. That that seemed obvious to me and and important to me about it. Thank you. I'm always. I'm. Where, where are you from? I, I'm from Massachusetts. Right. But I'm always so happy when anyone who's actually an American says that. You know. It's, no. I well, um, actually, maybe I. I because one um, of the things I really wanted to ask you about was. A, a lot of these places that you yes. write about in all three poems are, are places that I know. Right. And I felt a, a keen sense of recognition of all of these places. And it seems to me that you're a great observer of, of details and things and the sort of fabric of, of cities and places. So I wonder if you feel that way about yourself and how you infuse that into your poetry. Thank you. I, I mean, that it's all heavily invested with nostalgia now, I suppose. And I mean, when I wrote this poem, I not only had left the East Coast, which had been sort of four years earlier, but I'd actually just left America. And so I think in a way it was not only a kind of farewell to New York poem, but a farewell to, you know, a whole decade of, of life of being young um, and having this kind of adventure abroad, you know, at the point of just having returned to a much more sedate and sort of mundane life, more repetitious of my own childhood, you know, in the suburbs of London. Um, I feel now that I wouldn't be able to, I wouldn't be able to write this poem again, certainly. I mean, in some ways by putting these details down, they seem to have you know, almost ossified a little bit in my mind. In fact, since the book has been published, I haven't been to New York. I think that would be quite a strange thing because I've been talking about the poem a lot and reading out, out from it a lot to match the city as it now is with what I remember or, you know, have remembered here. I think that would be quite a disjunctive sort of experience. Um, but it's, it will come out in the States next year at some point. So I will go. <laughs> we'll have to see what the reception yeah. is like. Yeah. I, I mean, I spent time in New York I've spent a lot of time there, yeah. but the first time I went was when I was about 21, 22. Yeah, and the, yeah, it was so evocative and so 
you really capture the sounds and the smells and the senses of the city. I could feel like I could hear the subway oh. and like, yeah, the, the novelists in Starbucks, you know, like walking past yeah. those windows late at night and people just tapping on there. Well, that was me. I mean, I was the person inside Starbucks, you know, I'd, I tried before I wrote this poem to write a novel, you know, about New York. I mean, for years I tried to write this novel, um, but but it, it just never went anywhere. Like it was not the form for me. I think that's really always fascinating when you hear writers discussing their process of, of mm. finding the right way to tell the story that they're trying to tell, whatever that is, right? Then maybe the novel, yeah. yeah, the novel as a form is not always appropriate to say what it is that you need to say. Could you could you talk a bit about what drew you to to the po the poetic element of all of this? Like, did you always intend to write a collection of poetry, or no? no I mean, I I did always write poetry. I mean, I wrote poetry more intensively and sort of committedly than I wrote fiction when I was a like a young person here as a student and, and sort of in my early twenties and took workshops and published some poems in magazines. But it, it just didn't occur to me at that point to write long poems or to write poems that were really more than a page in length and. So there was this kind of tension between the sort of narrative impulse I think I had and the sorts of poems that I was able to produce, which are also very formal, you know, lots of sonnets, kind of rhyming poems. So, yeah, then I didn't do very much kind of creative writing for, for a decade because I was doing my PhD and um, somehow, you know, in my 30s managed to find a way to put those two impulses together a little bit more. But And process is difficult, right, because I can look back on the process of writing this poem in a way I wish I could repeat it, or, but in another way I really can't. So the kind of work I'm doing now, I feel I, I don't know what the process for that should be you know I don't know how do you every time I try and write a long poem I feel I have to learn again like how you might structure that at least something is to do with having for me anyway using different forms to to, to have different angles of perspective but the question then of how you link together the more narrative and the more lyric sections and what kind of story how much story to tell you know how how many other people you can include what do you do with dialogue that's quite difficult how much characterization can there really be in a poem that seems very difficult for me at the moment um yeah and what what kinds of relationships between your own individual in some ways autobiographical experience and the public sphere can you create you know with at the moment i've been writing um about my own neighborhood and to some extent about the fire in the grenfell tower and so that's a particularly acute problem with the, the poem i'm working on now can you talk a little bit about how the three poems of yeah. this collection came together? Yeah. Um, because we've been talking about You Very Young in New York, which is the poem you mm. read from. Um, but there's also Repeat Until Time, which starts with a move to California. And it's sort of about returning and repeating, ritual, mm. revision. And then finally, there's The Sandpit After Rain, which is about the birth of a child and the death of a father. So mm. what brought all of these poems together? The New York poem I wrote without expecting to write a long poem. So then, then the following year, I thought, you know, I want to try and do this again. I want to write another long poem, see what I can do. And I've been writing these little um, fragments. I think this process was the same the first time that were rather obsessively about the problem of repetition. So I thought perhaps there's some way of writing a kind of essay about repetition, um, but using the devices, you know, the techniques of, of poetry. Um, and I was especially interested in what happens if you put generalization first. I mean, if you make, make a general statement about um, you know, phenomenon, you see them all together and then the aspect alters. Repetition is inexact. Eternal return is falsehood. Um, that's the opening statement of 1.3 and then it's kind of explored through an example. Um, some images you might know of, of black cats uh, lining up. You know, there are the eerie images for an audition in Hollywood. People take their black cats, you know, to um, see if they can get the, the title role in The Black Cat, this movie based on a Poe story. Um, I didn't realized I think when I was beginning this poem that a lot of it was about San Francisco and about my life in California 
and the way that that life itself was repeating a sort of earlier version of an American life on the East Coast and the way in which my life in San Francisco seemed to be structured in terms of the neighbourhood I lived in, the kind of constant conversation about gentrification and sort of reappropriation of the counterculture of the 60s around means of repetition. Um, and I guess also around the internet and the way that that allows for things to be recycled, um, you know, video and so on. Um, the, I thought two poems would be enough for a book, you know. Um, I didn't send the work out, but, but someone sent it out on my behalf. And, you know, some part of me thought I could have a book that just had those two poems in it, but clearly it was too short. Um, so eventually I wrote the third one, which um, was was after I'd, I'd gone back to work, after having the baby and sort of trying to make sense of these two events that were exactly six months apart, my father's death and then um, the birth of my first son. And did you see that last poem as a continuation of, of these poems, um, of these two other long poems? I suppose in terms of a continuous writing project of trying to work out what, what can I do with a long poem? You know, what kinds of autobiographic experience can I put in? What kinds of fiction can I put in? And, you know, what what kinds of topics can I explore using this form? Like, where does it go? I feel like I'm in a process of experimenting with the long poem form, um, sort of trying to work out what its limits might be. So certainly not everything I've done, attempted to do in that form has been a success. You know, these are three things that sort of worked out in some way. Thinking about the autobiographical element, women writers of all kinds are yeah. consistently assumed to be writing autobiographically, whether they are or not, right? Indeed. Um, which is incredibly frustrating. And their male counterparts are granted way more space to just be writing about human experience and the freedom of that. Mm. Um, and I wonder how you've had, to, have you had to navigate this when talking about your work and kind of how does that manifest for you? Um, yes, I have had to navigate that. Um, something that I've become concerned about is that I feel with some readers, the minute I um, note that there's any element of fiction, it's as if the entire um, kind of mirage is is broken and that they almost entirely lose interest in the work. I mean, I think I myself, as a fiction reader, um, I've always liked writers like Updike or Roth, people who clearly are writing um, repeatedly and obsessively about the same quite small number of um, themes which are autobiographical but one doesn't tend to discuss the autobiographical element you know at the forefront um, and I was have been a bit surprised by how keen people have been to talk about that so if for example I say I never lived in New York which isn't quite true I mean obviously I spent a lot of time there but I have never rented an apartment for a year in New York or had a job in finance in New York I had that job in London you know I spent long periods of time in New York but I didn't consistently live there um, I have felt for some readers that that um, is utterly disappointing even devastating um, in in sort of breaching what the poem might do, and I think that is tied to the idea that confession the, the poem is confessional, which I think I would agree with, and that confessionalism rests on a kind of truth correspondence between the thing that you confess to and your having done it. Um, whereas I actually don't think that's the case. I think a lot of confessional poetry, you know, Lowell Plath, um, is not really um, about naked autobiography in any way. It's certainly not about one-to-one um, -one correspondence between a thing in your own life and, and the fact as you put it down. It always involves you know, performativity and um, disguise and I think to some extent fiction. Well also that seems to me like it's fundamental to the act of poetry yeah. which is not, it's not um, journalistic. <laughs> it's no. not you know just um, writing down things as they happened in a kind of straight line. It's It's an art so it's about elision and you know I mean, palimpsests and all of that. Like, there's a, a quote that I actually wrote down from Repeat mm. Until Time, which is, uh, true form is overlaid like moss on broken tiles, but scoured and weeded back, a mosaic face peers out and smiles, which I loved as a kind of 
description of the the art of poetry and the fact that you know you're like excavating some things and laying mm. other things on top and you're creating something new that has things to say but the meanings are not necessarily prosaic or straightforward because you're leaving space for your readers to insert themselves and take personal connections and understandings mm. and the idea that if it's a confessional poem it has to be like the, the verisimilitude is the most important thing seems very strange to me but I'm I'm unsurprised to hear you say that that's a response you've had from readers just because people people can mm. be very obsessive about it, I think, with writers, with women writers. I think that that's true. And perhaps there's also, I mean, some of the topics that I write about, especially with the description of a cesarean in the last poem, I suppose as a woman writer, I did think this hasn't been, has been written about in poems, but it hasn't been very much written about in poems. And so... Um, there is perhaps some need to, to have a go at describing this experience that actually is a very common one. You know, one woman in three, I think, ends up in the States having a cesarean, and then the rate isn't so much lower here. Um, it is a common experience of giving birth, and of course the partners of those women are there in the delivery room too. It's for many people the way they see a child emerge. So um, perhaps there's a danger of sort of, you know, having your cake and eating it, and that I, on the one hand, sort of do want to say I, I'm trying to write about some kinds of experiences that I have actually had in ways that are, are new, maybe, um, but on the other hand, yeah, of course, not all of the experiences that I write about are um, ones that I had in exactly that way. I think you're completely right about the idea of an art of compression. I mean, although these are long poems, they're actually very short pieces of, of writing. And obviously no one in a 10-page piece of writing could sum up even you know, a single year in, in New York. I mean, not even a single morning, right? That the, the extent that writing is always selection and condensation and exertion, I think that pulls it always away from being a transcript of, of the real. And that's something that all, all writers kind of know, basically. I love hearing you talk and think about how poetry works as a form. And that's mm. obviously something that you, you consider a lot as a writer. And I couldn't help but think about your work as an academic, right. um, which is interested in the interplay between freedom and constraint in modern poetry. So I mm. wonder if you think that your work as an academic studying poetry has changed the way you write poetry, or if that's just always been two strands of, of your interests that have come together in different ways um, I'm sure that they are connected although I think I, it takes a while to see what those connections might be I and mean, I think the sort of academic problems that I've been interested in solving at a larger scale so the two book sort of length projects the first on revision and now about free verse really are attempts to solve a question of kind of how can I write a poem um, so the revision book did teach me something I think about how to revise or rather how not to give up and how um, open-ended and maybe experimental one could be at the beginning of a writing process like how little to pin on success um you know how embracing in other words to be of writing failure and I think I wasn't like that in my 20s you know if it didn't come poem didn't come out and seem sort of finished you know within a few hours of basically starting it I would just decide I this is no good I can't stop um whereas these poems did come together over a much longer period of time you know in a more hesitant way by writing sections and then sort of stitching them together and then unstitching them and putting them together in a different way so that was useful um, now I'm working on the freedom constraint is specifically with, with reference to the question of whether or not um, metrical form is generative or whether it is merely constraining. So, you know, some people in the early 20th century said we should have free verse because there are so many things that you obviously can't say if you write in iambic pentameter. There are all these sentences that aren't in iambic pentameter that you couldn't put in a poem. Um, but I've been interested in the opposite idea, like the, the idea that having a, a fixed set of rules in any game, whether it's tennis or you know, poetry, whatever, chess, um, allows you to to do new things, to um, generate ideas, to make connections. Maybe rhyme often often does that, where you know one word leads in a surprising and unexpected way to a different word that it might 
lead you into territory that otherwise would have been impossible. Um, so I've been interested in the question of what modern poetry has, might have lost, or what forms of freedom have been closed to it by um, apparently pursuing free verse. Yeah, it's a really, really big question across all art forms, I think, mm, isn't it? Yeah, because the um, whole panopticon of choice can be mm. stultifying as well. But I think the interesting thing and what I really enjoyed about about these three poems is the way that they move between very established forms like the rhyming couplet into mm. a more free play. It is a kind of it's it as a reader, it's a wonderful celebration of all the different things that poetry can permit, I think. Um moving through different modes of expression like that in all within one text or all within one book. Um and it really shows that, I think, yeah, that element of, of constraint and then freedom and slippage. And the second poem especially, I think, directly engages with ideas about rhyming mm, and right. what rhymes can do and what they allow you to do and what they restrict you from doing. Yeah, I mean, I, I um, recently have been trying to write a little short piece of you know, creative prose and I think I am um, prone, very prone to, I'm very taken by rhyming. And for me, in writing prose is actually a problem because you can't really write prose if you have a lot of rhymes. Like <laughs> it feels the, for the ear to kind of circle back to itself like that feels, well, it doesn't happen to if I write academic prose, but sort of creative prose. So I think that material about rhyming came out of a sort of suspiciousness about my own practice or my enjoyment, really, of, of rhyme. I, mean, I love rhyme. It, perhaps more than many contemporary poets, and I, mm. I mean, those couplets, the rhyming couplets, are not really very neatly done, and that they, you know, they're they're not metrically very smooth, and they're very long. And you talked about feeling more comfortable with revision, and I wonder mm. if you could talk a little bit about when you do revise your poetry, what is that process like? What are you looking for? How do you do you sort of feel your way into it? What works, or are, do you have rules for revision? No, I definitely don't have rules. I mean, I think I've just accepted now that I, most of my writing is is a revision. You know, that I get something down quite quickly. Um, sometimes on my phone, you're like in quite a provisional, you know, the first draft, and then there are just many, many days with each section, which, you know, spent changing words, cutting out lines, adding in new lines, you know, relineating, sometimes tidying up, you know, deciding to try to make something more formal often the opposite that it starts is something that actually isn't more metrical and, and then kind of roughing it up a bit yeah most like 99 percent of the time i would say is spent revising i think probably it has become almost too extreme an addiction now um, <laughs> and there is a point definitely at which i i think revision starts to sort of leach the energy out of something of kind of knowing when that is like when to when you want to save some of the spontaneity or the energy of the original while combining it with some of the you know the polish or the you know the greater neatness of a revised version that seems really hard to me you know in my own writing I think probably it's hard for lots of writers yeah it's interesting um, how many writers talk about yeah about this as well and that like the art of writing or the way that what the word writing means to a lot of people doesn't include revision and doesn't include failure in their conception of it when actually mm. those things are completely integral to the process for all writers of all kinds whether they're journalists or you know prose writers creative writers poets that actually the initial moment of what gets down on the page is not the sum total of the work i mean in the, the podcast format is interestingly analogous to that i think in that you know, if you're giving a lecture or a talk in public um you can't fail in your speech and you can but then you, it's very very difficult in speech to make repairs and i suppose here if we say something wrong we can cut a little bit out but but certainly i think there's no oral format that is anything like as open to the possibility of replay as as writing is and so 
Um, I think that's a difficult thing in poetry because in one sense you are producing something to be read aloud. You know, the primary performance perhaps of any poem is its um, instantiation, you know, as a recital. And yet on the other hand, you're using this method of producing it that is so alien to what you do in speech. We've been talking a lot about form and the nitty gritty Mm. um, bits of of how one writes a poem. And um, what I just Mm. wanted to say is when reading these poems, um, one of the things I really loved about it was how many levels they work at. So obviously there's so much thought behind the form and and things, but you can also read it almost as like a, a, an exciting narrative. You know, I really felt I really felt I w- that these poems engaged um, in a really exciting way with what it feels like to to live um, in the sort of contemporary world and what it's like to be a woman and things like having a cesarean section and being young in New York and dealing with the death of, of a parent. And, you know, it's not totally inscrutable, like, wordplay. It's it's really alive with feeling and emotion and story. Um, and I wonder if that's important to you and and if it's important for you to to make your poems readable in that way. Um, thank you for, for saying that. I mean, it is really important for me that they should be readable but I don't know if I necessarily have any particular kind of techniques for getting there I mean I I certainly I do think this commitment to sort of syntax is quite important in that it seems one way for a poem to be really unclear including drafts of poems that I write is to sort of evade completing a sentence so that you end up with lots of noun phrases kind of descriptions piled up against each other but nothing ever really happens like it's never quite clear what the relationship between those things is so I have been trying to be quite strict with myself in these longer poems about you know having sentences which seemed essential to be, being able to tell a story. Um, I wish I had more narrative skills, you know, than I do. I um, did try to write a novel about New York, found that very difficult. Um, the first poem, which is the shortest, I think, you know, has the most obvious kind of narrative structure, but it's a very simple one. It's kind of living over a year and it's also living over a day. The experiences of a you know, young woman in a um, in New York and, and perhaps the in, only interesting thing is the process of kind of callback where someone in the present is speaking to their former self in the in the past um but it's quite a simple structure the third poem i had more difficulty with knowing how to arrange these two events so the question of what is the temporal relationship is obvious my father died six months before my son was born but the poem doesn't begin with either of those things it begins sort of waiting for the baby to be born and to begin with you don't realize that the death has happened um, but obviously death also follows birth. It both proceeds in this case, um, birth, but death is the end of life. So the, the idea of really what order are these two events in, that was a big problem for the poem. Um, and also the question, I suppose, of how to link together more storytelling parts with more lyrical or general parts. There's quite a lot of stuff in the third poem about cleaning, about like processes of decay, degradation, entropy, um, a sort of appallingness of just trying to clean a kitchen you know when you have a toddler or a baby the um no matter how clean you get it like within an hour everything has been reduced to disorder and the feeling that you're constantly engaged in reordering um but there's a lot of material about that I, um and the question of how to sort of link together those sort of sections like the think of a children's sample after rain seaweed of twigs blown costa cups a capsized sock the filthy abandoned homes of snails that's kind of a long section in section three but how to put that in against the story um, that was really difficult. Yeah, um, would have been I loved of that it. image of um, the sandpit after the rain. Oh, it's it's sort of instantly rain. recognizable, isn't it? And I can see why you saw it as this um, this image that's filled with so much meaning beyond itself. Mm. Well, once I 
yeah, I spent a lot of time, I spent a lot of time in parks now. So I find my, find <laughs> I've got a whole section of the new poem I'm writing about about playgrounds in parks. Um, seems to be my theme at the moment. <laughs> it's the, but that it's such a textured image as well. Like the sandpit of Doreen, I can feel the wet sand on my feet and I can smell it. It's a very primal image because we've all spent a lot of time in playgrounds, right? Mm. But you spend a huge amount of time in playgrounds at one stage of your life and yeah. then not for a long time. And then, and then you come back to it again. And that, that is a strange thing. Yeah, you, yeah. And presumably this will actually also be quite a short period of time. So, yeah, I'm very interested in that, the way in which an experience enough for many of us happens in middle age and sort of late 30s or I'm now 40 um, replays something that happened at the very beginning of your life and then you never get to do it again. My husband was telling my son the other day, um, you can't have a bath with daddy anymore you're you're too old but you know maybe one day you'll have a little baby of your own and you can have a bath with him when i heard him say that i just burst into tears because it seemed so sad to think of all of these solitary baths stretching in front of him for <laughs> forever kind of into eternity punctuated only by possibly maybe in 30 years time 40 years time one more year of bathing with another person um, so i think there's something very poignant and very close to actually to questions about mortality that about the replay that we get to do of our own lost childhood um, now for many of us in, in middle age. Perhaps it would be different if I was in my 20s. But also, I mean, that brings us back to the poems in a really nice way because there's so much about memory and nostalgia, like you said earlier on in the conversation, in there. And one of the things I found really appealing was the way that um, things like Facebook and like mm. Yelp reviews appear um, and Street View and... Yeah. Um, these are all things that already, as you said, like in some ways are anachronistic. But we, I, st well, I'm quite a luddite, so I still <laughs> think of technology as incredibly fresh and new. But obviously, a lot of those things are slightly in the past, and it's yeah, strange sure. how I mean, I'm not on Facebook anymore. Right, you, me right? neither. Yeah, no, Facebook, so right? they can date um, us in a particular moment, yeah. but they can also be incredibly um, emotionally poignant. And there's a line in in the first poem, "You Very Young in New York." Um, which r I loved, which is it, um, your mother asked, well, in fact, it's over a couple of lines, mm. your mother asked to be your friend again, but the request just hangs in the sidebar, mm. um, which, you know, like I think would have appealed to my 21-year-old self as much as right. it appeals to me now, but for very different reasons, right? But I wonder if, if you enjoyed thinking poetically about things like Facebook and, and, and those kind of very mundane, quotidian things that can become also very poetic as symbols in, a, in an unusual way. Yeah, of course. I mean, I'm. Um, I hope someone asked me the other day. Do you? Does it preoccupy you? Do you worry about the fact that you put so many sort of brand names and contemporary references into your writing? Does it mean that no one will read your writing in the future? And it's it's true that I'm actually not at all focused on that. Like it, in a way, I just don't mind if people don't. But I do hope that many of these things, even though Facebook, you know, probably won't exist at all in ten years, that the what that is about about the relationship between an adult child and their their mother and the you know, the forms of sort of desperation, really, with which the mother wants to be close to the child and the child guiltily repudiates that, that that is a you know, universal sort of human human dynamic. But, but yeah, I mean, I'm very interested in my current writing about uh, in sort of the digital. I mean, I think the New York Prime is really only the beginning of, of this is someone who spends a little bit of time on the internet, but it um, is not, you know, as Apple's screen time tells us now, it's not like six hours a day or however many hours a day many of us are now lead to our phones. I find that absolutely incredible that in the last decade of my life, because I was nearly 30 when I got my first iPhone, that I've gone from a person that spent no time at all on a mobile computer that I carried around with me to much of my um, sort of intellectual conscious time. I read a lot of books on my phone, you know, I'm sure many of us do these things, watch a lot of videos, I listen to a lot of podcasts, you know, I, um, it is almost my primary device for, for connection and for engaging with literature. So I've increasingly been wondering about also why I'm drawn to writing on the phone mm. and then what it might be about that 
screen size. If people are going to read it on the phone, maybe you should produce it on the phone and just bypass the book, you know, entirely. But um, sure, you can't say that here. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm teasing. No, no, I think no, no, I'm I... sure <laughs> probably shouldn't be here. Yeah, <laughs> and if Mark either. Zuckerberg's listening, he's going to be very angry. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, Facebook's dead. Get over it. Um, <laughs> Hannah right, Sullivan, um, thank you so much for coming on no, Literary Friction. Um, it's, it's been fun. a total delight to have you. Um, we loved reading Three Poems and and we would heartily recommend it to our listeners. It's in bookshops, available for your delectation. Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, back here with Octavia Bright to talk about this month's theme, which is poetry. Obviously, this is a massive theme. We are never going to be able to say even close to what we want to say about the subject, but this is a way to start. We talked a little bit about poetry with Anne Rowe, who we had on our end of year show, but we didn't really delve into our feelings about poetry, why we like <laughs> it so much. I'm just grinning it's my face. It's very off. emotional. <laughs> anyway, Octavia, what do you think poetry can do that other forms of writing can't? Oh my God, so much. I mean, I'm a I'm a massive poetry reader and 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 a lover. So I'm I'm really happy that we're talking about it. And it's going to be hard, like you said, to kind of condense everything. I mean, when I was thinking about answering this question, the thing that came up were several quotes actually from other writers because I think they all get at the essence of what poetry is trying to do. So Baudelaire, who was a famous French poet um, from the 19th century, said dancing is poetry with arms and legs. Um, Plutarch, big famous old Roman. Yeah, must be. Yeah, wish I knew. Uh, painting is silent poetry and poetry is painting that speaks. Um, and then there's Alice Walker who says, poetry is the lifeblood of rebellion, revolution, and the raising of consciousness. And Audre Lorde who famously said, poetry is not a luxury. And I think with those four quotes, you get a real sense of the things that poetry is able to do that are about condensing and about um, ren like rendering an impression of something. And it's about capturing um, something very essential about what the writer's trying to say, whether that is a sensory experience or a visual experience or something that moves the body. Or, But I think the thing that's coming through for me in all of those quotes is it's about movement of some kind, movement of the spirit, movement of the body, movement of the soul. Um, art, real, true art, um, which is why I get so excited about it. I'm like, <laughs> Carrie's looking at me and I'm waving my hands around and I'm yeah. grinning my face off. Well, it's interesting that two of those four quotes used a different art form to describe poetry. Exactly. So it seems sort of intimately related to art, as you say. Um, I always think of poetry as a distillation yeah. um, of, of some sort, and it can be of a lot of different things. And obviously there are so many different forms of poetry as well. I mean, it's hard to think that Hannah Sullivan's book and a book of limerick are the same even genre of thing and yet they are so mm. as soon as we start talking about this all of our descriptions sort of fall apart yeah but what I love about the Alice Walker quote when she says the raising of consciousness and she's talking about that in the context of rebellion and revolution but I think that like to bring in the limerick for example and actually referring back a little bit to what Hannah Sullivan was saying about rhyme like 
playing with words in that way touches a different part of our consciousness that's not exercised in our daily lives, in our work lives, in our family lives necessarily. But it harks back to something really fundamental about learning language. Like when we first learn how to speak, we learn to repeat sounds, we learn to mimic, and we learn to appropriate language in order to express ourselves and I think there's something really essential about what poetry does in that way that connects us to something ancient and it also connects us to you know collective experience of language people memorize poems and say them together the way that it relates to music is similar in that way and that's where the revolutionary power can come as well because these these art form this art form can distill like you say a really powerful essence of a feeling or a need for change that then can be shared by a large group of people and I don't know I, I think it yeah I think it has I think it has great power in many different forms yeah and just picking up on what you said there about emotion and the kind of comprehension that poetry engenders I think one of the reasons why people claim that they don't like poetry is often because they think it's incomprehensible but maybe there's a way to reconceptualize that, which is like poetry is not always about understanding why every single word is there. It's more about a feeling or a sort of group sensation or something like that. And and when you start to be a little more open to that, that's when you can enjoy it more rather than having to understand why every word has been placed in the in the position it has. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's another thing that is a problem with the way poetry is viewed is through this lens of elitism and as you said like two of those quotes using other art forms painting and dancing similarly those two art forms can also be presented through a veneer of elitism that can be that can make people feel very outside and very alien too but actually the art in itself is there to be appreciated you know like you don't have to be educated in the history of art to appreciate the visual side of a painting. You don't have to be educated in the history of poetry to appreciate the sound or the words, actually. Sure, if you know all about romantic poetry, you might be able to understand what a particular writer is doing in breaking down form, but that's only one element of the thing. And actually, I think breaking down the structures that make people feel outside of these things is so, so, so important because at the heart of good poetry for me is an emotional resonance. And however that lands, whether that's delivered through rhyme or pentameter or whether that's just delivered through the imagery it's conjuring or whether that's delivered through the voice of the poet who you're listening to do spoken word, like, you know, there's so many different ways in and I just, I, I, I want to I tear down walls, Carrie. Yeah. <laughs> I can see. Um, well, so tell me about your first introduction to poetry how did you get into it how do you feel about it now has that changed oh so much um when I was little my my dad was a big fan of limericks so I grew up listening to him singing these like half singing these very very rude limericks and making up limericks about people um so it was kind of very embedded in my childhood in that way and my mum used to read me lots of poetry and when I was a teenager well, young teenager, probably about 12, 13, I discovered Sylvia Plath and had this very profound react like response to her work and the visual nature of it. Um, and, you know, not everyone's into Plath and nor should they be, but it was very formative for me. And then when I got to my late teens, early 20s, I rejected poetry completely outright. I decided that it was sentimental and mawkish and despicable and that it was a class marker that I didn't want to associate myself with. And I was very vocally against it. <laughs> and then I started writing it. And then that brought me into a completely different relationship with it. And I realized that there was some kind of um, cultural shame that I had inherited that I think was to do with Britishness and I think was to do with 
a certain kind of snobbery that I didn't want to be participating in. Um, and when I was able to let that go and started reading the work of poets that were not introduced to me through my education, like Toni Morrison, Benjamin Zephaniah, voices that were coming from different places um, other than like the white academic canon, basically. It was electrifying. And now I'm like, I'm like 100% in the game. <laughs> I love it. And I love how diverse it can be. Um, and I'm constantly giving people books of poetry to read. I to, to varying degrees of success. I think a lot of my friends just take them and go, thanks a lot, that's great. Yeah. And then they don't <laughs> read them. Um, so yeah, that's me. What about you? Well, it's interesting. I hadn't really thought about my childhood, but of course our, our childhoods are filled with poetry in a way that they're maybe not in our young adulthood. So I grew up reading Shel Silverstein all yeah. the time and had a tape of him reading all of his poems and we loved them. Um, and disconnected from it a bit until I I, ha I must say the white men did it for me at first. Um, <laughs> Which I, ones? <laughs> the romantic poets. I mean, for really? me, my junior year of high school when we were studying British literature, I just, I felt that flame when I read poets, especially Keats. Um, mm. Just there was something about the way that he connected to the world and saw the world that I was very excited by. Mm. I now see some of the the problematic things with a sort of wanting to possess the natural world and always filter it through the human consciousness and a certain kind of consciousness. But it's still I'm still very thankful for the way that the romantic poets ignited my imagination. Um, I don't think I'm as big a poetry reader as you are. Uh, and I sort of stopped, I think because I read so often for my job. I, I, I must admit that I don't always find reading poetry easy because I do think even though you don't have to understand it, I, you really do have to slow down your attention and dwell on it and spend time with it and linger on every word. And I'm the kind of reader that likes to read through things quickly. And so I love reading novels for that reason, because once you're in a world, once you're reading sentences, you can sort of turn the page, turn the page, turn the page. Um, I know this makes me seem like a total cretin, but whatever. Uh, no, not <laughs> um, a cretin. But I, I have been reading more poetry lately. I loved reading Hannah's book. Um, and, and there have been certain poets recently who I've really connected with. Claudia Rankine, for instance, Citizen, oh I think my was God. one of the best things I've read in the last few years. So that I, book I'm, is extraordinary. I'm slowly reintroducing it back into my life. Yeah, good. So what makes good poetry? Do you have any answer to this? Mm, it's really, it's a really hard one to answer. Um, I think I can tell you what makes bad poetry probably more easily than I can tell you what makes good poetry. Um, I think, I think bad poetry is over-invested in itself and overly self-referential to the form. Um, basically for me, bad poetry is elitist poetry. Good poetry is um, from the gut, whatever that means, actually. And I mean, that's, that's not a very helpful answer to the question because it's incredibly loose. But I think, you know, one of the things I enjoyed a lot about Hannah's poems is that they're interested in form, but they are also, they don't compromise on their um, honesty of their intention. And by that, I don't mean verisimilitude necessarily, but I just mean like the raw um, desire to communicate something very primal that can then be understood as a universal. Do you know what I mean? I'm yeah, I do. And I think... It, it, a dumb question in some ways because asking what makes good poetry is is asking what makes good writing um and it's sort of an impossible question to answer uh i always think about it as just a, 
a unique way of looking at the world. If so, if somebody is using language to show me something different, um, I'm always interested. Yeah, yeah, and I think the way that poetry can engage the other senses is one of the great, you know, it's great strengths, I guess. And again, that comes through that distillation. Um, but also for me, I love wordplay. I, I revel in it. And it's, again, something that you don't get the chance to experience that often in more traditional prose writing. Um, and certainly not in a lot of the things that I'm reading at the moment, which are nonfiction, quite heavy academic approaches to things. You know, no one's just having a or if they are doing a fun double entendre, it's very knowing and quite kind of cringy. Um, and I love I love sound and I love the sound of words. And again, that's something that poetry really revels in. And I love listening to poets read their work. Although I have to admit, I hate poetry voice. <laughs> it's And it's a style, it's a stylistic choice that a lot of poets make when they read their work. And, and personally, I find it alienating. I much prefer people to read their work in a more naturalistic way, because I think the words can ring out for themselves. They don't need to be corralled in that traditional way and I think that the poets that started off reading in like that like Ginsberg and some of the other beats were doing something very specific and I feel like sometimes that rolls over into contemporary poetic performance in a way that I find a bit disappointing. So tell me about one poem that you love. One poem that I love. Or a collection of poetry. Oh, I'm going to do a collection because it, it honestly like I found this it's so hard to narrow down um because there are so many poems I love and so many poets I love and I've, I'm like already feeling anxious that I've left out name checking so many of them. But uh, I'm going to talk about something that um, I literally just just read. It's just been published because I think it's so exciting and I think it says a lot about where we're at right now um, that this kind of work is, is out there. Uh, it's called Witch and it's by a poet called Rebecca Tamas, published by Indie Press, penned in the margins. Um, it's so good and I think... I think it would be a great book of poetry to go out and buy if you haven't read poetry for a while or ever at all. Um, if you have, like, I think it could appeal to any kind of poetic reader, basically. Um, so Tamas, she takes the legacy of the witch and she makes it completely relevant, again, to contemporary context. Um, and she gives the witch this voice that is singular and multiple at the same time. It's very sexy. It's quite violent. She's funny and surreal and sarcastic and powerful. Um she speaks to God. She speaks to the devil. She offers us hexes and spells. There's a penis hex. There's a cunt hex. Um, there are spells for everything from maths to joy to UN resolutions. Um, one of my favorites is called Interrogation One, which invokes the witch trials. So the whole thing is political and feminist. Uh, it's very filthy and it's very funny. But there's something about it that feels exciting and revolutionary. And um, it's it's full of commentary about our world today basically and identity and uh, she dedicates the book to her friends which I also thought was really beautiful because there's a sense throughout this this collection of poems of the collective and the power of the collective um, so I love it I love it I could say a million more things about it but it does just what I want poetry to do it's lyrical but it's also contemporary it's funny but it's also raw and quite scary sometimes and it has a political energy to it yeah I've been hearing great things about that collection yeah so it's fantastic it I'm a little resistant to this whole witch thing that's happening right now yeah I think that's fair I think and I think so am I in some ways I think that the cultural capital appropriation of 
mysticism and crystals and tarot and like prosecuted women and prosecuted women is very complicated um but i think that this text is going prosecuted f- sorry not prosecuted <laughs> also God, prosecuted just, prosecuted and persecuted <laughs> yeah but i think this text is 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 100 cutting through that and doing cool. something really worthwhile cool yeah um what about you i found it equally difficult to choose um i'm not as much of a poetry reader as you but i have had my life changed by many poems and poets yay Uh, so it's difficult to pick just one but the one that I picked because it's one that I have returned to again and again throughout my life and found different resonances in it at different times is um, Meditations in an Emergency by Frank O'Hara who as you know I adore um it was published by Grove Press in 1957 O'Hara was probably the most well-known of the New York School of Poets, and his poems are such a wonderful reflection of what it's like to live in the contemporary world and especially live in a city. It's sort of full of voices and janglings and song and rhythm and music, but also, you know, he's a very emotional poet. A lot of his poems are about love and joy and pain and, you know, sex and decay, and, you know, it it feels really sort of present and visceral. and I love the way he writes about art as well. He was friends with a lot of artists like Larry Rivers and Jasper Johns. And he has a wonderful, you know, I think getting back to what we were talking about earlier about poetry being a wonderful medium for talking about other art forms as well really comes through in his poetry. But most importantly, um, they're just poems that make me feel alive. And they always have. And I think they always will. And I'm so thankful to Frank O'Hara for being there to compose them for me (laughs) for me Um, just for you (laughs) yeah and um octavia you read one of his poems at my wedding i did yes and it was a joy to do so it's one of my favorite things is reading poetry at the weddings of people i love it's like it's a real it's a real privilege to be able to do that and to be able to be the bridge between the poet and that and the moment the experience you know just to be the vessel through which that yeah, so it makes me sound incredibly, incredibly wanky. <laughs> you are the vessel. <laughs> I am the vessel. Um, but you know what I mean. You yeah. know what I'm getting at. No, and you had a great poetry voice. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I love Frank Ahara too. Great. <laughs> we'll be back um, with our book recommendations. With the day comes the dawn. I sit and spin and I can't begin to recover and count the cost and get lost. Welcome back to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here with my co-host Octavia Bright and also Hannah Sullivan to give our book recommendations. So Octavia, would you like to go first, please? I will, with pleasure. Um, So I just raced through a really great book called My Sister, the Serial Killer by Oyinkan Braithwaite. Um, Firstly, it has one of the best covers I've seen for ages. It's kitsch, but really glamorous um, and with a lot of brilliant lime green accents, which seem to be a bit of a thing at the moment in the industry. And I heartily approve. Um, But yeah, it's brilliant. And I mentioned the cover because it's actually a really good visual descriptor for the book itself. Um, 
which is a brilliant read and it's designed to be a quick read, which I also really appreciated because I've been wading through a lot of very heavy mm. texts lately and it was just a joy to read something that I could judge each page and was desperate to find out what was on the next one. Um, and uh, yeah, it's stylistically, it's pulpy, it's funny, it's very clever. Uh, it's a mordant commentary on sisterhood and secrecy and on social media um, and the gaps between our private and public selves, trauma, after effects of trauma, sexism, corruption, codependence of survival under oppressive structures, all things that I'm very interested in. Um, and uh, whether that's at the level of the family or at the level of the state, it's set in Lagos and it's narrated by Karidi or Karede, I'm not sure how to pronounce her name, um, who's a nurse with a thing for cleanliness. And she's always clearing up after her very beautiful younger sister, Ayula, who happens to also be a serial killer, which you find out right at the beginning. Um, so no spoilers. But anyway, it's very funny. There's a real screwball comedy vibe go going on. Um, it reminded me a lot of Almodovar's films, actually, in the way that it's... Uh, outrageous and also very real and poignant at the same time um, yeah and I read it in a day and it's I love being able to do that it's such a joy to yeah. just be able to sit on the mm -hmm. sofa and read a book and finish it <laughs> yeah I've you know I've been wanting to read that book and also I I completely agree with you and sometimes you know how you get in reading ruts sometimes mm. the things that get me out of those ruts are those books that I can just finish in a day and feel completely consumed mm. by. Yeah, so pacey. And it feels sort of like cleansing Yeah, almost. it's a gift, it yeah. is. It's a real gift and I laughed out loud mm. and I also wept a little bit. <laughs> Although listeners know I'm very easy to move, but yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a great book. Hannah, could we have your recommendation, please? I'm going to recommend a book called A Compass Error um, by Sybil Bedford. Um, she's had a little bit more attention um, recently. I think in 2015 there was a piece in the New York Review of Books about her but she um, is a very very underrated and I think little known compared to the magnitude of her talent writer who had a very long life um, she was born in, in 1911 I think and, and died in 2006 and didn't begin writing until her 40s um, a cosmopolitan writer she was born in Germany this book is set in the south of France um, between the two wars um, it's a fantastically evocative um, and uneasy um, recreation of, of that world on the south of France um, but particularly it's about a, a very young woman, 17-year-old called Flavia, who is preparing to go to Oxford and who is a, a quite scholarly and sort of pedantic person as the novel opens, but um, is in bed with another woman by about page 30 and eventually makes a, an error. This is the compass error of the title that um, the older Flavia, looking back at her younger self, believes has caused her entire life to be askew. So it's a book that takes very seriously the possibility of sin and error, I think. And it has an absolutely hypnotic writing style um she was a great expert on wine wrote about wine i think there is no book that i know that has such great descriptions of um food and drink um and of, of sort of the sensual life um there are lots of flaws in it part, a large part of it is um a retrospective meditation given to her older female lover um about her family history we find out at the very end that the woman is actually asleep and has been the whole time um, I think narratively and sort of structurally that, that section is far too long. Um, so it's not a perfect book, but it's it's absolutely bristling with um, brilliance, I think, in terms of the prose style. That sounds fantastic. Uh, with, sorry, can you say the author's name again? Yeah, she's called Sybil um, Bedford. Sybil um, Bedford, Compass Era. Yeah. Can't wait to read it. So I'm going to recommend a short story this month. And it's not because I haven't had any time to read a full book. I call bullshit. <laughs> It's called Terrific Mother by Laurie Moore, and I've actually brought it in um, because it's such a beautiful little thing. I started reading it because it was published as part of the series of Faber stories that came out this year to celebrate the publisher's 
90th birthday. And um, as you might expect a favor, this is a very favor positive show, isn't it? But it's it is a beautiful object. It's a little miniature book with French flaps, which I always love. Please explain to the listeners what a French flap is. A French flap is just when um, (laughs) the inside of the book has it's a paperback, but it has its own little flap inside. Is that an okay? Just say the word flap again. (laughs) French flaps, a pleasing green cover. It's a really good color of green. Sort it's of also grassy. It's, I'm looking at it right now. It's got a very, very beautiful line drawing on the front. Yes, I was about to say, and a beautiful line drawing <laughs> of of a woman, a naked half woman. <laughs> <laughs> um, but more importantly, the story itself is so so good. I've never actually read any Laurie Moore. Oh, she is the best. Yeah, people have been telling me to read Laurie Moore for years, and um, this is the first story I've read of hers, and it, it really has convinced me that she's truly a master. Um, so it follows Adrian, a 35 year old woman who accidentally kills her friend's baby at a Labor Day picnic, which is the first really paragraph of the story and then her sort of retreat from the world in the aftermath of this incident it mostly takes place at this italian villa that's hosting a bunch of academics um, where she's gone with her new husband but based upon that description it sounds like this would be a story just full of like sadness and pain but it's actually really funny it's quite witty and acerbic and joyful in addition to being full of pain and its ability to hold those two things at once seems really special to me and I don't know if that's true of her other writing as well but the other thing I loved about the writing itself is she strings together these long long sentences that are still so utterly comprehensible and crisp and sort of perfect in their construction and I just it was such a joy to read and read this little book as well just reading it as a book was was so much fun so I'm going to seek out more Laurie Moore but in the meantime I'd recommend everyone pick up this one terrific mother. Oh God, it's, I haven't read that one, but she is fantastic. You know where to go is the New Yorker fiction podcast. People often read her stories aloud and her writing is amazing to listen to. What? What is this, the New Yorker <laughs> fiction podcast? I don't think you've ever discussed that before. Maybe you don't know about it. There's this woman called Deborah Treisman. She's quite cool. <laughs> That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to our interviewee, Hannah Sullivan, Rory Bowens at NTS, and to Eddie Knight for editing and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. You can also get in touch with us on email litfriction at gmail.com. I do check that account occasionally. (laughs) I'm not the best about it, but I'm trying to be better. So keep emailing. Yeah, please get in touch. We'll be back in a month. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction.